heck were we talking about earlier? We were talking about American history. We're talking about we American crazy. To turn it I, on. I know we're talking about American history. Well, you know, we're here in in North Shaolin, North Staten Island, and we're recording this at the uh, Everything Goes Book Cafe. This we're, place is awesome. Yeah, it's a really, really lovely. Reminds uh, me of when I was a kid. It's a which I'm no longer a kid, but oh yeah, but we're all children. <laughs> we're, we're not a kid, but we're all children. It's Ex one of exactly. It's one of the, the oh many ironies God. of uh, life in this temporal oh, plane. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you know, when I was driving over here, um, I was I was remembering when you uh, gave Michael Franti and I a gig opening for you guys, oh, Living yeah. Color at the Warfield Theater. Yeah. And that was up to that point in my life. I mean, I think I was like 21 or 22. That yeah. was the biggest gig I had ever played. Really? Yeah, yeah, because I was a street musician but before Man. that. And he gave me this gig and I was, and with Michael. I was like, what is going on? Dude, okay, let's were, make it happen. You were so... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, will, I remember doing sound check. I said, "This guitar player is out of his mind." I mean, it was. I was so blown away. And you and and the thing was so cool about it, because I was a fan of the Beatniks, right? Which was Michael's band, you know, at, at that with, time. Ron, with Ron O'Shea and you know, uh, and uh, forget some of the guys that uh, went on to. They were the Brown Fellinis. Brown yeah, Fellinis, right? I think Kevin and Andre. Kevin and Andre, thank you. Yep. Yeah, and uh, it was so. Uh, I loved it because you know that whole mix of the avant-garde and uh, the, you know the hip hop. Your know, hip hop at that time was an open field. Mm -hmm. It was very much an mm -hmm. open field. I mean, this is like about 1989. I think. It's 89. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so the disposable heroes. You know the ink that came out of 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 the beatniks, um, you know, was the evolution of this of the idea, and and, and your contribution was was fantastic. Ah, you're too kind. You're too no, kind. No, not at all. Not I at mean, all. I was just there. I was the worst guy in the world because I was I was only interested in like must listen to more Wes Montgomery, more Joe Pass, more yeah. uh, whatever it was. But well, but that was what was going on around. Uh, me at the time was sure. this hip hop thing, and somehow I I got in there, and you know my kids really are into hip hop, wow. and and uh, for so, yeah I guess it happens to them they they get into it, and and it's fascinating to me because you know they're listening to this stuff and you say, and, and my son is like dad have you you heard of this this guy Bismarcky and I'm like Bismarcky is the best are you kidding you know it's like <laughs> I, I we played a gig with Bismarcky or yeah, like yeah. the Public Enemy yeah. we know the I I know yeah. those guys but at the time it was just like it was just a gig and i was just sure. like you know i do these gigs and then go back to whatever the gig was yeah. that i want quote unquote wanted to do and of course in hindsight and having started listening to i start to realize like wow like that dude uh premier kind of was really a genius and oh, these yeah. guys these guys are like really good you well, know you know the thing the thing that's beautiful though is that you're part of hip hop history but you're part of this at that point it was rest still inchoate it was still founding its way i mean the music is still developing you know mm. what i mean and, and, and in a way for hip-hop my great fear for hip-hop which is really really about what happens above the line what's happening mm -hmm. with commercial records because the underground is always going to be you know doing the thing that it does but you know we used to have like records would be seismic you know, like uh, uh, 
sucker MCs, you know, like a re like literally a record would arrive and it would blow the roof off the whole form. Right, right. And I think there are a lot of people who appreciate jazz, love jazz. If you get past, you know, if you get past the the threat that this supposedly novelty music that suddenly becomes very popular mm -hmm. imposes, you start to see the parallels. Just like Louis Armstrong, a novelty music that becomes yeah. really popular. <laughs> yeah, but this is the thing: pop music, art music, and pop music have this kind of tense. Oh. Uh, bagels are on their way. Oh, thank you so much. Awesome. You know, um, have this relationship, and the relationship one feeds the other, comments on the other. You know, there's a back. Of course. There's a back and forth to the point where you know where you get something like a West Side Story, where you, you know Leonard Bernstein, you know who was paying very much attention. He was one of the 20th century composers that right. really was paying attention to jazz, who mm -hmm, really, mm -hmm. like a David Amram, that embraced what right. jazz was. And, right. you know, and, and, and on the other side, you know, like what, you know, a lot of the musicians who were coming up and were really listening, paying attention to Stravinsky and Schoenberg, mm -hmm. and were, you know, and we're hearing, oh, they're these, all the, you know, and Hindemith, and hearing all these other kind of possibilities yeah. inside of that, and interjecting that. So there's this, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I, yeah. there was, you know, just reminded me, there's some story, and I don't know who it was, but in the 20s in Germany, there's some very famous conductor, mm. who's a total, like, hard-ass guy. Yeah. And uh, I guess he was sitting there, and he was in a good mood, and that you know they were doing some work on a score or something. And his concert master was like, "Oh, sir, what are you seem happy? What are you doing?" He goes, "Well, I I saw Louis Armstrong's band last night, mm. and I have to say it was the first time I had ever heard anyone play time the way that I wanted to hear it." It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, Isn't that beautiful, though? It it's is just beautiful. like if you're on that level and if you're tuned, if the radio is tuned, is turned on, and you you have to listen, you have to you have yeah. to be tuned in. If you're tuned yeah. into the frequency, it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. You're gonna hear it. Even a even like a, a curmudgeon like me who goes into something with a serious uh, attitude, right. I'm always being proved wrong. And, and as long as you have the ability to be proved wrong, you know that you know. is the be well. The thing also too is is on the one hand, you know, there's the idea of play. And we and play becomes this kind of grim proving ground, mm. right? Because mm. it hooks mm. into all of our all of our many issues as men. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The, you know the alpha, the this, that, blah, right. blah, blah. And then what can get lost is is really play, right? And the joy of it, and really the thing for its own sake. And the, one of the things that was so liberating about a figure like like Monk, you know, Monk was you know. His music was playful. Absolutely, was, was was really really playful, and like a song like "Salt Peanuts," you know. Like, <laughs> well, that's not his tune. Well, but, okay. But who wrote "Salt Peanuts"? Oh, that's an old. Um, I don't know, man. That's I think that's from the twenties. Is that like a vaudeville thing? It, it it might even be a vaudeville thing. Yeah, I mean that goes back. That goes way back. Well, there you have but, it. But you know yeah. what you're talking about about Monk being playful. 
about all those things. It, and you talk about it, you know, the whole the whole thing as a when you're coming ac across as a musician, and you're um, you you're trying to, you know, you come out there on the scene. Like I remember being like 22 and being like. Man, I'm gonna show these motherfuckers that I yeah, can play. I've been yeah. in the shit eight hours. I'm gonna go out there. I'm just gonna yeah. blaze. And it's funny. I wanted to bring it up because you know, unfortunately, we lost him just recently. But um, one of the first things I did when I was in that hypocrisy group when we were on tour in New yeah. York, my friend Dom Richards was playing with Ronald Shannon Jackson, yeah, and he had me come down to that rehearsal studio yeah. and we played for like five hours. Wow. And it must have. I must have played the worst music. Ever because I was so in that mode of just like I'm gonna show these guys that I, I know how to do but at the same time you're really you're really worried about like oh insecure can I yeah. really play this your big New York guys can I really play and you know you go through that but you know we'll go, get back to Shannon but my point is yeah, yeah, that you I think it's a rite of passage and I think you have to go through that yeah. to get and you have to have those scars and you have to have sure. those humiliating experiences Absolutely. so that you can know how valuable it is to just be able to get in front of a crowd of people and be able to express yourself. And then Absolutely. you get to the point where Absolutely. you can be 14 again and you can play. Well, and somebody yeah. like Monk develops that to such a high level that it's just irrefutable. Well, the thing, it's so funny, you're thinking about Monk, you know, like they have this Thelonious Monk piano competition, mm. and one of the curious things for me is like, <laughs> well, you know where I'm gonna go. You know where I'm gonna go. You know where I'm gonna go. Which is what Jack Walras said. He <laughs> said, they asked me to judge a competition named after someone who would never have a chance of winning it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, there is a, a really, uh, just baked in joyful absurdity, you know what right. I mean. As right. we celebrate, even as we celebrate, we also, and we we can wind up invalidating mm. as we celebrate. Mm. I mean, I I come back oftentimes to Jimi Hendrix, and yeah. and one of the funny things, one of the interesting cultural constructions is that we live with. Unfortunately, is you know, it becomes a contest and it becomes uh, not just a competition, but a contest. Like, who will be the next fill in the blank? God, I hate hearing that. And the, the next. That is so claustrophobia inducing. It's, it's really when I hear awful. That. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is, you would have to. The life conditions that create a musician, mm. you know, we divorce people from their families. And they, it's, as, it's as if they were born out of the head of Zeus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, no... and, and that is just one point of their reality, their family. And then the other oh. point is what Jimi Hendrix grew up as, where he grew up, this grew growing up. of the situation he yeah. grew up in, and the, the world that was... Um... Oh, thank hey, you. Hey. How awesome. Thanks. And some napkins? You got oh, all I the got napkins all. are there. Okay. Perfect. Thanks. <laughs> and the situation that he grew up in... Oh, excuse me. Can I get one of those um, Eve's elixirs? Yeah, which size? Large. Thank you. You know, just like any of those people, just like you, just like me. I mean, think about the the situation, yeah. the trajectory you got, you guys went through with yeah. that Living Color. It's just like yeah. at that time, I remember turning on the TV and seeing you guys because I would never watch those shows because there was no music on there that I liked and and seeing you guys and I mean I come, came up in Berkeley, California where it's pretty much like 
there was no dominant majority. Mm-hmm. There were all... Uh, everyone was... You knew the idea, you knew the history, right. you knew about people, you knew... But, so for me to turn on the TV, I was like, what? This is weird. What is, what is this? Oh, this is MTV, but... Oh, wait, there's black people on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hate to put it like that, yeah, but, you know. Yeah. But that was, to put, make a long story short, that was your reality that you were up in. And when you say, when someone says, oh, the next Vernon Reedus, the next Jimi Hendrix, which was said about you at yeah. that time. And when, when you hear someone say stuff like that, I'm just like, oh, my God. It's so claustrophobia and totally so ignorant, too. Well, it was funny because on the one hand, that's a projection. And then there's a projection and there's an assumption. Right. And for me, it was a double whammy because it was like, there's a projection, or oh, he's the next Jimi Hendrix put on me. And then there was an assumption that I wanted to be the next Jimi Hendrix. Right, right, and, right, right. And, and actually, in reality, my feeling for Hendrix, you know, I have a big painting of Hendrix in my dining room. Mm-hmm. Thank you, too. You're and, welcome. But the, the weird thing is, I am deeply ambivalent about the iconography of Hendrix in the sense that... Oh, agreed. You know, that Hendrix is a kind of... has become a kind of demigod. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he died at 27. He did... What he did, he did... He did what Charles Christian did. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he did... He shifted the paradigm. Put what, what, you know, uh, what, what, um... Hmm. He did that thing where he, in the short time he had, he turned the picture. He yeah. turned the frame. He shifted the paradigm entirely. He really did. He cre- not only you did he shift it, he created an entirely new paradigm. That, uh, yep. You know. Um, and you know, you're you're totally, totally right. Um, it, it's just, I'm sorry. Continue. He was a did. challenge. What he did was he took, he fused together. A few different things because he was he, he was an R and B guitarist mm-hmm. and a rock and roll guitarist mm-hmm. who was interested in blues and studied the blues. But mm-hmm. he was he was an R and B, you know, was very influenced by by right. Kurt, Curtis Mayfield. Like you listen to sure. Curtis Mayfield, sure. you get it. You know what I mean? And Bobby Womack, the other left-handed Absolutely. kind of R and B guitar yep, players. Totally. And certainly, you know, as a journeyman, you know, he played with some of the most dynamic. Artist of yeah, the he day. played with King Curtis. He played. He played with the Isley Brothers. But I was know, talking to Ernie Isley about oh, it, which man. was like, whoa. Oh yeah, man. <laughs> Very interesting. But the thing thing about that is, when he played with Little Richard, he also played. He was in a hierarchical mm-hmm. social milieu. So in the Chitlin circuit. The singer is a star. Oh, absolutely. Now the singer may also be an instrumentalist, like mm-hmm. King Curtis. You know what I mean? But. The singer is a star, mm. and he's at the top of the pyramid, right? He may have a second in command, like like James Brown, you know, with Bobby, Bobby Bird, Bird right, right? Right. But there's no mistaking who's at the top. So, right. your musicians, you know, like an Amos Milburn, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Sure, sure. A Louis Jordan, right. they may be instrumentals, but they're they're, they're the, the dude, oh, yeah, and yeah, everything yeah. else sure. follows under. Well, Hendrix was so full of he had that joie de vivre he mm-hmm. had that that tension he had that need to express himself he was also from the wrong part of the country see he right. wasn't from the uh, south exactly so yeah, yeah. you know so he wasn't he was kind of like a kind of a loose a free radical exactly. if you will yeah, and he yeah. wasn't you know like if he you was an outlier 
He was an outlier that wouldn't conform mm -hmm. to the paradigm, and that got him in trouble all the time. Absolutely. That got him in trouble Fired. all the time. Fired. Got Fired. Him, you know, Fired. You know, take your, <laughs> where are you from? What time? Where are you from? Exactly. Where's well, that? Well, skedaddle. You can skedaddle your ass on out of here. Yeah. And all of that happened. And also it was a time with, with bands, you know, the bands were crisscrossing and playing all these different, right. different places. Right. So there was a real ferment and people were trying to establish themselves. And, you know, the difference, man, you know, there were cats, other bad cats around. Oh, sure. You know, Dude, we, I mean, look, you know. he was out there at a time when somebody like Lonnie Mac mm -hmm. was playing. And we, in a lot of ways, in terms of just the physical act of playing the instrument is kind of like a proto Hendrix, but without any of the cultural with that he was very much a gospel slash blues guitar player, right? Totally. It was in the early rock and roll, mm -hmm. or not early, like mid rock and mm -hmm. roll mm -hmm. era. So he would have been out there. And but obviously Curtis Mayfield was out there. And even more importantly, Cornell Dupree was Cornell out there. Dupree. They played together. And Cornell Dupree was a master gospel guitar oh, player, yeah. which people don't talk about oh, that way well. of playing. But oh, that yeah. is, and you can hear that in all that Hendrix stuff, like, you know, Wind Cries yeah. Mary, all this, it, that's all oh, Cornell oh, Dupree. Right. You preach right and, seriously and um mm -hmm. it, you know you hear that that guitar playing and and um you know but obviously the cultural aspect of of who he was was what informed so much of how he broadcasted what he wanted to do none of those other guys would think oh let me check out this Bob Dylan dude, or let me listen to a you Coltrane know, record, or let me, that's you know, the thing, the thing. Let me take LSD. To have, well, to have <laughs> the sort of questing nature, and to not have right. the cultural boundaries, the kind of boundary. You know, Luther Allison's another kind of guy. Was, sure. Was, it's, I mean, qualified. Mm -hmm. But Hendrix was the person who was willing, you know, to take that other step. Right. To take that that extra step or go to extra place, and was able to throw himself. You know, it's just it's just one of those things where the British invasion was happening. There was so much energy around what was happening in England. Mm -hmm. People were going back and forth, and somebody saw him. Yeah. In a New York club doing his thing. Yeah. And really, you know, a lot of his moves. I mean, I mean, T Bone Walk. I mean, T Bone totally. Walker. Totally. Guitar slam. Guitar slam. Yeah, I mean, that yeah, was, yeah. you know, there was a whole repertoire yeah. of, okay, how, you know, it's not enough to play. Okay, I'm going to be yeah. playing this guitar. Let me put it behind my head. Let me put it between my legs. Let me, you know, yeah, I'm, exactly. And, I'm and not just that, but, like, when you take apart the specific licks, it's, there's, like, certain things. Like, when I was a kid, I used to go see, because of my mom's interest in the blues and mm -hmm. what she was into, I would go see guys like Sonny Terry, Brian McGee. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorites was Clarence Gatemouth Brown, who I saw from when I was a kid, you mm -hmm. know, a little kid. And then I, when I, I'd hear some Hendrix stuff, I was like, wait a minute, that's a Gatemouth Brown lick. And a Gatemouth Brown is, and then I, I like, well, I really like Magic Sam as well, you know, like all this stuff. I'm like, wait a minute, that's like a, that's a this, that, okay, all right, I, I get it. Not to discount it any, any but you know, it's it's also really easy for, for, for our kind of mainstream culture to, to cherry pick somebody like Jimi Hendrix and take him out of his reality. Take him out of the context. Exactly. We do it all the time. You know. I mean, for me, like one of the great um, injustices is the sidelining of Alice Coltrane. Mm -hmm. 
as an improviser. Mm-hmm. I mean, what she she's never really discussed as you know in the context of the organ as an instrument of its development. Mm-hmm. She um, was a was was a great innovator, and and one of the great things because all this is also tied somewhat to technology in a, on a level. Mm. The ability to hack, if you will, in right. real time, right? To to take the tech, prevailing technology and manipulate it in an, in an unintended, mm. in an undocumented way. Like what, the whole Alice's thing was turning the organ, actually turning it off and turning it back on again. Uh huh. Um, sure. And and that was how she was able because they didn't have pitch wheel. Right, right, right. So, so, and, and that's how she would get that bending. The bending, yeah, thing. yeah. And, and 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 she got this thing, and I, the moment, the aha moment, she's playing the organ, and she's playing, and she turns it off, and she hears the sound change. She turns it back on again. She turns it back off and on. And the other thing is, to take that leap, but then, to embrace the dysfunction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and turn the dysfunction into a new function exactly yeah and and i wonder about how many times i see it all the time people get together and they'll do something in a rehearsal and do something something really fun funky fabulous joking around and then it's time to get back to business right hey I've, <laughs> I've been there and and i've a lot of times been the guy that's like hey let's get back to business and the other times i've been the guy who's like all right that was a moment let's admit that that happened and figure something like around that's that. that's our business when you mentioned shannon one of the great things about shannon is you couldn't play anything around shannon because what's that like, yeah, and I remember that. Even the two or three but, times I played with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Do that, do that again. Exactly. Like, and he exactly. was always clued into, he was always clued into that moment, mm-hmm. that juncture of, okay, that's right there, that thing. Do that again. Right. He he actively looked for it. He was always listening for it. And that's something that... um Yeah. That, uh, and it's one of those things, in, you know, like in, when I'm producing a record, or producing an artist, that's something that I'm very hyper aware of. Mm. Like walking into a room, what are the instruments just laying around? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are things that I don't know what they are, what they do? Mm-hmm. Uh, if any, if any of the musicians have like this other thing that they do that they 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 don't really take that yeah. seriously, but yeah. it's something like they do. And those are the things that I'll go. We're using that. Mm-hmm. That has to. Mm-hmm. What does that do? Mm-hmm. Turn. Plug that in. Yeah. yeah what is yeah. it? You know what I mean? And because that those things, the un the unintended thing, is a crucial aspect mm-hmm. of of how uh, you talk about the paradigm shifts and those even in a on a micro level, like the wah wah pedal. Oh yeah. The wah wah pedal as uh as a voice in music because it it it's very much well not like the kazoo per se but right. <laughs> but the wawa pedal has had a tremendous if i had to pick out a single pedal 
certainly in 20th century music. Uh, and you, you could say to, a, to an almost similar degree the overdrive pedal, but the mm -hmm. wah-wah pedal, in the applications, this is very simple, thing, sweeping this potential, mm -hmm. sweeping mm -hmm. this tone with the, your foot, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, the thing about wah-wah pedal that's real interesting is that, and I'll, I'll give you a little story, I used to love to use a wah-wah mm -hmm. pedal. And um, I started playing with Curtis Folks, mm. and um, you know the way he used a plunger, and I've never touched a wah wah pedal again because <laughs> I heard Curtis, and I was like, nope, I can't, I can't. I, that's what I want to sound like, <laughs> and I will never sound like that. So I'm just going to stop. But the thing about the wah wah pedal mm. is, it was designed by that guy trying to mimic, you know, the whole Clyde McCoy, because at the time, that's who they knew. They weren't thinking, oh, Bubber Miley, or or they weren't thinking of these really great mute players. They're thinking of this guy, Clyde McCoy, who was good in his right, you know. But, um, you know, so that was their whole thing. And the thing that's really cool about the wah-wah pedal is it's not just um, manipulating the tone, because there's also an inductor in there mm. that not only manipulates the tone, mm -hmm. but it manipulates the volume Absolutely. and it manipulates the uh, resonant frequencies Absolutely. even more. And that's where all of that stuff happens. And that's why you'll get a wah-wah pedal and people will just fool with it or like, it, you know, the early, like you hear those Bob Wills things where the guy's using his tone thing on the lap steel, wah-wah, yeah. you know, to get that whole thing. And, but the thing is, when you come in with the wah-wah pedal, yes, you are, there you have that thing. And it brings us back to Hendrix again. It's like, okay, so that, that pedal is out there. And people have been using it. Right. But he finds it. And immediately, it's like, oh, I, this is what this is going to do. Same yeah. thing with a, something like the Univibe, where they make this Absolutely. thing that's supposed to be a Leslie Speaker simulator. Right. Right. And no one really uses it. It's just kind of languages. And then all of a sudden, Hendrix finds it. He's like, oh, well, this is what we do with this. And, you know, go back to overdrive. To me, like, I hate overdrive pedals. I hate them. Mm -hmm. There's nothing worse to me in, in my ear mm -hmm. than the sound of a tube screamer. I right. hate that sound. <laughs> but... There's nothing better to me in my ear than the sound of a Marshall turned up to 10 straight in or a Champ Amp turned up to 10 mm -hmm. or any of those things. But that's just my own mm -hmm. opinion. And what I feel about an overdrive pedal is it really is, is not a uh, paradigm shifting thing because it's just doing what an amplifier can do at a lower volume well, generally or putting another gain stage in front of an amplifier, you know. Well, uh oh, we're getting techie, Vernon. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it's funny because certain tones, tones unachievable by other means, mm -hmm. become their own voice. Mm -hmm. Like, like the big muff. Because mm -hmm. there's a difference in. But fuzz. that's fuzz. That's fuzz. That's, fuzz. that's not overdrive. It's I know. Different. Fuzz no. is glorious. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, dude, Hendrick took that from what I've read is that fuzz came about because those British guys were using those amps that, it, that were, had too much bass in them. And they made that Dallas, uh, the range master, which was just one, one um, germanium transistor mm -hmm. that would blast the input, the, the first preamp tube. Mm. And not only blast it with, um, with signal, but blast it with a, a signal with a lot of treble. Right. So when they turned that on, it would change the amps, dynamics, everything. Yep. Then someone had the idea, well, well, wait a minute, why don't we just put two of those 
uh, circuits in series, and there's your fuzz face. So you get one mm. thing blasting another transistor, and then that thing goes into the amplifier, and then all of a sudden, Jimi Hendrix finds it, and then there you and go. And there you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, it's, it's, it's funny, these things. Um, unintended or like people going, okay, here's the here's the manual. Let's mm -hmm. toss that out. Mm -hmm. You know, it, they're gonna have a retrospective on Mar Marcel Duchamp. <laughs> and um, dude descending a staircase. Yeah, you know, fountain. <laughs> and um, uh, you looking for something up there? Yeah, a specific author, but I don't know. Who's the author? James Dashner. Dashner? Yeah, the author of The Maze Runner. The Maze Runner? Yeah, a movie's coming out, so I'm going to read first. They might not have it yet, huh? It's Dashner. like a trilogy. Well, it's like a science fiction book? Yes, yeah. It mm, doesn't look like it's under D. It'll be right there, huh? Mm. Yeah. I don't see it. Dan to Davies. <laughs> No Dashner. No Dashner. That's cool. <laughs> sure. Sci-fi, baby. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know the whole concept of technology because uh, Adam Dorn actually interviewed him to me the other day, mm. um, which is fantastic. If you get a chance to listen to it, he's such a brilliant dude. I've never met him before, but. Um, you know, there's that thing he had with Stanley Crouch when Stanley Crouch starts talking about technology. Right. And and I was thinking to myself, well, technology is, is anything. Technology is a spoon. You know, that's technology. And then immediately, and Toomey went on, well, I mean, what do you mean by technology? Saxophone is technology. It's high technology in a lot of ways for, for uh, the mid-20th century, you know? You know? And so what do you do with the technology? So Adolf Sachs invents this thing for marching music. And then all of a sudden, Coleman Hawkins gets a hold of it. Sidney it was a Bechet minor. Gets a hold of it. Yeah, yeah. There was very little music yeah. written for the saxophone. The saxophone was languishing for a long mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. We look at the, you know, they had a, um, a, um, a retrospective, or they had a thing on Adolf Sax's early instruments. Mm. I was touring with Shannon. I went to this exhibit, and it was in Stuttgart. Mm. And. If you saw the early saxophones, you'd like this guy is out of his mind. Mm, mm. They look like like tr the early first saxophones were like were like brass instruments. They were like trumpets with like multiple bells. Like cra it was. <laughs> no. I remember Shannon used to play that thing, the Shalomai. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, like the whole idea. He was trying to get this thing, and all the steps it took. They had all the different. You know, pre-inventions mm -hmm. until they got to the saxophone, and then the saxophone was finally done, and then there was was it didn't really take off, and then there was a craze. Mm -hmm. There was a saxophone craze in America when mm -hmm. saxophones were, all, were everywhere. Right. And so we right. Coleman Hawkins. The saxophone is really its place. Really, is in jazz. So it's like it's, it's something like where a music had to be. I hear you have this instrument, and then music is developed that fits this instrument right. that right. wasn't fitting in e other... Exactly. Which, which is amazing. Was a novelty instrument. Completely Think about the soprano saxophone. Oh, Think yeah. about, um, you know, the tenor and the alto was... Nobody wanted to play the alto. And then, you know, Bird came along and then that was, wow, the alto, you know? But I think it's interesting to think about the saxophone is that 
uh, you know, the guitar, the instrument that you and I play is anybody's instrument. I had the same conversation with Campolongo, Jim Campolongo, with Nels Klein, mm -hmm. so many guitar players. It is the world's folk instrument in one mm -hmm. way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I mean, I play obviously a different instrument, a different tuning than you mm -hmm. do, but the Spanish guitar tuning, why do we play that? It's culturally specific to flamenco music, not to what we do. Mm -hmm. Yet, here is this incredible instrument, this is this cultural, the worldwide folk instrument that goes through every culture so you know the vernacular that you and I uh, we can go from everything from Korean music mm -hmm. to, to West African music to Spanish music to country American country music to Brazilian music to a Cuban variation whatever it is right. we we have a, a way to, to go into that world but the saxophone like you said it has a very short history. It's a very young yeah. instrument. But a lot of people are like, well, you know, it's a very young instrument, but it has already gone from being a vital, not, I don't want to say street because that has a kind of pejorative attitude right. about it, but it's gone from this really vital, incredibly popular instrument that is connected so culturally mm -hmm. um, at the grassroots level to something which has become incredibly institutionalized it's very in less than 50 years it's not since its inception but since Coleman Hawkins did that body and soul uh, recording which right. is to people is like that is the that, advent right. of the modern saxophone you know I think one of the most maligned people for me um, was Eddie Harris oh and he is my all-time favorite I think I've transcribed like mo more of his stuff than any guitar player Eddie Harris <laughs> Eddie Harris and Eddie Harris has paid the price for plugging the saxophone in. Mm, mm. I, 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 really, I really believe that. And that's like one small aspect of what he did. Incre he, was, he just went for it. He was know? an incredible, he was an incredibly wide-ranging mm. musician. Like his, everything, um, you know, from freedom jazz dance to, to that's why you're overweight. Mm -hmm. Or he had a giant jukebox hit hit with Exodus, the theme from Exodus. Right. Huge. Huge hit. Remarkable. Mm. I mean, go to mind. Mm. Incredible mind, and also um, he was another uh, I would say a kind of um, his music has this, this fierce, you know, um, Intelligence, and then at the same time, he was also dry, long soul. He was like right on the ground. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like he, uh, bad luck is all I have. Mm. I love his records with Ronald Muldrow. Those funk oh, records, yeah, those records those are, are just. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Funk then, aroma. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it's um, he is to me is so bad, and it's funny, Adam Dorn. My partner in this endeavor, his what? dad produced some of those records, and he knew Eddie Harris and Joel. You know, yeah, Joel, yeah, Joel, man. You know, Joel was a real thing. You know, Joel, Joel. Um, I was very, very saddened by his passing. Mm. Joel was a, re you know, like there's this, this whole thing of the hipster. I'm like, <laughs> you know, come on, like keys that basso profundo <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, 
he was just uh, he was cut from the old cloth, mm, man. Mm. And there's certain people that just, you know, they were in the room mm-hmm. when the shit went down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's 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 remarkable. Yeah, he was a, he was a great, great, great cat. Yeah, he's, he was a lot of great music, man. Yeah, you know, a lot of wonderful, 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 groundbreaking, historic. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, totally, totally. Adam talks about it occasionally. You know, I kind of pick his brain. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the people that we uh, end up having conversations with on this podcast are people that Adam knows from his dad. You know, Les McCann and Les and, McCann, um, baby. You know, a lot of the other folks that are that are on there, and you know, they have just great stories about it. And you know, he Adam tells an Eddie Harris story about just how you know people just don't want to give him the props because. It's so inconvenient. He's very inconvenient. He's an inconvenient. He's a very inconvenient he, person because he is, in a lot of the ways, one of the baddest head-cutting tenor saxophone players ever. I mean, he'll come and just ruin. I mean, so bad. In that way mm-hmm. that we were talking about earlier, needing to get over. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. he'll make the baddest funk records the best whatever you want to call avant-garde records and he plugs the saxophone and he does all these things it's just inconvenient he's a wrestler well you know the thing about about Eddie Harris he's restless he's one of restless right you know I think that there's certain cats who get bored mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean if you can be inside if you can live inside of a certain paradigm a certain mm-hmm. place and you're good with that, mm-hmm. then really there's nothing to say. Really, dude. I mean, I think both you and I are those people as well. Not that live in, inside a certain paradigm and just ride it out into yeah, the, it's, the it's cool, but, you know, it's it's like, it's kind of like, you have to think about, I mean, in the sweep of history, in the mo- in, in, in the shift of, of, of uh, generations, mm-hmm. you know, um, interesting to talk about hip-hop. Yeah. In the context and the development, development was like George Ann Muldrow, right? The daughter of Ronald Muldrow, mm-hmm. was a fantastic post hip hop artist, um, great vocalist. I didn't even know that. Oh yeah, man! Wow, That's wonderful. I'm old. Oh no, man! You know what though? It's hard to keep. It's hard to keep up with everything. It but, really but, is. But you know, but it, it's 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 it's. You know what it is? I think I hit the wall when people start talking about trap music, and when I heard a trap track. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, there's like a whole, you know, every, you know, this whole. And. Yeah. And. I hit the wall with the other one with the um, what was it, uh, dubstep or something. Dubstep. Like that. I, had, I hit but the wall with. Dub, that. Hit I was the like, wall I've heard this already. I know, but you know, Studio is, One is what I call I'm, it. I'm still, I'm still. You know, the thing is, I, I, I have to say, the first time I heard drum and bass, it filled me with a kind of childish joy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it, and. Uh, so I think about like the the people like Square Push was amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Man, you should do something with him. I checked him out. I, I have. He's, he's, he's still... a fantastic bass player. I oh mean, wow! Yeah, he's 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 um Tom Wilkinson, right? Tom Tom. Yeah. Anyway, mm. he's an amazing musician, really special. And of course, you know th- the records like Feed Me Weird Things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cra- I mean, crazy or or um, Venetian snares. I don't know who to do, but Venetian snares. That shit is over the top. You know. Wow, I'm gonna have to check it out. I mean, I have checked some out, but I I need to to delve deeper. You know, you know I just always find myself listening 
to my old records. You know, mm. the old blues records. I just yeah. like, well, what do I want to listen to? Okay, it, maybe it's just a function of getting older or something. But oh. I just feel like I have to re. There's so much there that was is unanswered for me that I, I have I, to I keep reading because it, that's just the kind of person I am, unfortunately. You know. But let's get back to you're talking about being restless and. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will say, "Oh, Vernon, you know, living color, blah 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 blah." But I'm like, you know what? You don't get it because if things were a little bit different, yeah. that would have never happened. Yet you would still be on your course doing what you're doing. It's yeah. the same with me. I had a lot of things that if I had stayed the course, I probably could have been much bigger. But that's not the point because you and I both know people who are much, much, much bigger right. and are not really happy artists. Sure. We're gonna do, we, we sign on for this thing because we get to do it our whole lives. Absolutely. It's not because we get Absolutely. to do it for a little bit and then burn out and then become a story, a footnote somewhere. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you have know? to take on the whole rock and roll thing. Like, once you, if you don't, it's kind of, um, the music affords a freedom of attitude. Mm, mm. Attitude is everything. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but then to take it on, on another level is music to develop and change. You know, like you know, like uh, Zappa. You know, Zappa took the influence of Edgar Varese. And, right. And right. he and Zappa was one of the few rock musicians who was very, 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 very appreciative of Eric Dolphy. Mm -hmm. you know, understood. Mm -hmm. What Eric Dolphy. You know, Dolphy is one of those figures for me that just um, he took Parker's language and made it even more abstract. Yes, he you did. Know, he. I mean, he did. What you know, a, a kind of a, uh, you know, almost almost an abstract expressionist, or maybe maybe cubist, <laughs> deeply mm -hmm. cubist mm -hmm. approach to something that was already you know you know just paradigm shifting, and and he's also very inconvenient, in personage as well, yeah. completely inconvenient, you know what I mean, and uh, and 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 these people who are the, you know, it's funny because in a way Ornette would be that but Ornette also s somehow Ornette who was Ornette got the uh, uh, and I'm not nearly enough appreciation but Ornette got a kind of a critical assessment and appreciation mm -hmm. that was not afforded to Eddie Harris it was mm -hmm. not gonna mm -hmm. be afforded. now Ornette deserved 100% 150% the you know the acknowledgement yeah that came his way, and what hurts in considering Adolfi, right, or Eddie Harris, who are also worthy, mm -hmm. also very worthy, and these things, you know, I mean, these things change the direction of a life. Mm-hmm. You really do, like they really do. And, I mean, uh, being passed up sucks. Being passed over, especially when you, when you kind of invest in a cultural power structure yeah. or you have to invest just by dint of the fact that yeah. you are a participant yeah it's really rough and it doesn't matter who wow. you who you yeah. are or where you yeah. Yeah. came from mm -hmm. you know it's like it's it is really a rough experience and i think that somebody like eddie harris and i know people who knew him said that that was a that was a real big part of his narrative you know well, it was, was, a, it was embittering it was, mm -hmm. it's, it's the kind of thing I mean you have to 
you know. Um, I mean, believe me, I know I'm the worst. I'm the worst curmudgeon. I've been passed over so many times for absurd reasons, you know, mm-hmm. just absurd reasons. But it comes to that point where you're like, okay, well, you know what? You can either be a doer or a stewer, you know? And I spent plenty of time, plenty of time stewing about it. Oh, I could play better than this guy. I can do this. I put in so much more work, you know? But yeah. then, then you start obscuring, you start to steal in their humanity from those people yeah. that you're mad at. And then, then you basically dig yourself well, into a real ditch of bitterness that makes it really hard to get back to what we were talking about well, at the beginning. Well, you know, I, I don't want to even, you know, I, 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 there's a recent incident that I really don't want to mention any specific names because... But I will. <laughs> you know, because somebody, you know, one musician, you know, recently received a MacArthur grant. Mm. And, um, and, you know, the guy's very, very interesting, very, I think, very innovative. I don't even remember who it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the MacArthur Grant... Oh, I know, I know. Yeah, got it, yeah, got yeah, it, got The it. MacArthur Grant thing is one of those very polarizing things. It's very culturally specific. You know, it's very specific, and it's, and there is a committee, you don't know who they are, you don't know what the criteria is, and different right. people, you know, different 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 people in different disciplines get mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But it's once it's granted, you know, it's kind of like somebody winning the lottery. Big and, time. and what happens to when people win the lottery? Well, you know, what happens to a person's environment? Mm-hmm. That's why people who win the lottery mm-hmm. wind up. They're miserable. They're miserable. And so this, this artist, who I think deserved it, for a, for a myriad of reasons. Um, because they're 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 adventurous. They they work in different they they work with different media mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then someone who is a wonderful musician that I respect really kind of came out in social media, came out of their way to mm-hmm. dispar to really disparage mm-hmm. the sound that this person makes, yeah. and to 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 kind of position yourself as the arbiter of taste or to position yourself as the person that's going to say, wait, man, this cat is blah. You know, yeah. I think it's it's fascinating to take on mm-hmm. take that uh, that on because if you're talking about you know it's like lifting someone out of a particular style or out right. of a thing and making right. the proclamation about right. who they are who they'll yeah. never be right yeah. well I, I just think it it's sort of like begs and I'm gonna misuse the phrase beg the question but it but it kind of like well who the fuck deserves like who are you I mean you know I mean there's certain people I, you know, if, if it's if it's a Pat Martino making this statement, I you know I I kind of go you know, right. but I go he's that guy, yeah. right? Well, I think you know what I think a big part of what you're talking about. I've talked with people about it. Is that I mean I didn't buy the whole jazz. I didn't go to music school. I'm not a product of that jazz environment. Um, and you know because I always felt like I obviously I love that music, but um, it was never a part of whatever I had that was special to offer would not have been accepted in that world. So basically, but I do know and appreciate a lot of people in that world yeah. and what they seem to say is that, you know, they buy, they unfortunately have, have bought into this idea that there's opportunity just because, and to be totally honest, and I think I can say this because I am a quote unquote white guy living in the suburbs now, even though I didn't grow up that yeah, way, mm-hmm. well, the suburban part, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, it is, again, it's 
that kind of uh, thing that's born out of untitled. I mean, it's born it's out entitlement, of entitlement really. and unearned white privilege. And basically, not to diss anyone, we're all humans and we end up where we end up. Yeah. We start where we start. Yeah. But it's it's good to have some perspective. And I think that what happens is you your world gets smaller and smaller mm -hmm. until you're dealing with people who grew up in this very specific, more... Um, entitled environment and they go to a music school and I think that they work really really hard at becoming these incredible musicians which they are but then I think they have a really skewed view of what should be waiting for them because if you treat it like you're you're an accountant or you're an engineer or a lawyer then of course you get out and you get a job if you're a musician I'm sorry you're just you get out and you try to get a gig and you know how difficult it is and you have to have something so I think you have that on the one hand where everyone is so uh, envious of whatever success someone else or perceived success somebody yeah, else has and why and so you begin the tearing down process which happened to me because I got I was on Blue Note Records and I wasn't even like a music school guy it was just like oh he's well, not even a jazz guy which is fine it doesn't but, bother me but, 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 but this is the thing Charlie see the thing that's it's, I, I tell you what what's fascinating fabulous for me is the fact that you are outside the box is self evident in what you do it's oh, self-evident well, you're outside the box. And, and i tell you something. Only thing that matters, only thing that matters is making the sound. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is the beautiful thing about music. You could be a complete ignoramus. <laughs> Can't <laughs> read, don't, oh, know, yeah, da, da, yeah, don't yeah. know what, don't know any, don't know modes, don't know what the notes are. Right. You could be a, 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 a ignoramus right. and shake the world. Like Hank Williams. Shake. Or... Willie John, Blind Willie Johnson, oh, there's, there's, Hank Williams, or you know, I mean, there's a long list. There's a of long those list. People. You could shake and the world to its foundation. It's on the deepest level. It's on the deepest level. It's on the deepest level. Yeah. Look, you can be someone, of course, that is that is really studied, but you, there's a leap. There is a leap. Right. That all the musicians and all the artists. Yeah. There is a leap, and that leap is not. It can be studied after the fact mm -hmm. and talked about after the fact, but that leap of faith, that leap of consciousness, right. that that thing that when you're that takes you beyond the journey where you're making a sound. Yes, like for Jocko to make the sound he made, he somewhere in the somewhere in his life. All of those things had to come together. Yeah. Disparate things. Things that right. of things course, that are counterintuitive. Things have to come together. For Lighten Hopkins to make mm -hmm. the sound mm -hmm. he made. For Eddie Harris to make the sound. Absolutely. For Hank Williams. Yeah. Hank Williams to embody in a song. And he had many great songs. Yeah, but for, yeah. for him to embody like you know I'm so lonesome I could cry right, right, right. it was 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 one of the greatest songs about the male uh, the male version of the human condition right, right. Like for an American guy of a certain right. thing you know to yeah. to say that thing for Al Green to sing Jesus is waiting right right which is really for me transcendent of it's it's not even 
actually Jesus. But right, right. something, those things, the people that do that yeah, thing, yeah. the thing that you know, the thing that made Vince Guaraldi, Vince Guaraldi. I love me, Vince Guaraldi. You know, and you know, I and you have to Vince Guaraldi, yeah, and yeah. this, and that quality of love, right, is something you can't. You can't be trained. No. You no, can't you're pay right. for it. You know, the first notes of Ina Kleiner knocked music. Mm. It's the thing, the implacable human thing. Exactly. exactly. You know, now I, I think of Vince Guaraldi and I think to myself, you know, Vince Guaraldi, he can he changed the lives of so many people. When I was a kid, I mean, you know, to think about the music he did for the peanuts, mm -hmm. right? Something about what Charles Schultz did connected with this Scott Cat's music. And I'm like going, man, you're you're as heavy as any of the cats. Right. Yeah, and right. you're not and you're not gonna you're never gonna be considered yeah. one of the cats. Yeah, yeah. But you know, and then it comes out of that that world like I was on a thing with Ramsey Lewis one time. Mm. Ramsey Lewis, you're just like, yeah, whatever. Listen, he played this gig and it was just like, All right, you friggin' win, Ramsey, and, and from now on you are the man. I love Ramsey Lewis. Me too, and I did before. But you know, it brings us back to that whole like the MacArthur, that Grant thing, and I think that there's a pro uh, the problem I have with the culture of it is that it's it's a distraction because yeah, it's <laughs> it's n it's a distraction of and I hate to get all like Berkeley uh, old school Berkeley what Marxist dialectic but it's yeah. basically <laughs> it is a distraction of a very landed elite bourgeois power structure that is is you know, I mean, and they're humans and they deserve their viewpoint, but you're dealing with, you're putting, as a musician or an artist, you're putting so much stock in a group of people who have so little perspective on anything outside of their very small academic reality. Yeah. And so their choices are made through an incredibly, incredibly narrow viewpoint. And um, you have to understand that, and it's totally valid. Look, they have someone's millions of dollars to give out to people, and someone's gonna get it, so it's just like, hey. But, you know, what I think people take exception with, like the last person who won it, is they feel like there is, uh, uh, there is a uh, strategy among certain people to, to reach certain milestones and do certain PR things that will put them in a position to win such an award. Right. And those are the sweepstakes, that the stakes are really high and that because there is no buddy, nobody's going to that music without, they're not going because they like, they've worked all week and they're bummed out and they're like, I've got to go see Art Blakey to make myself feel better tonight. They're going because it is underwritten by some state subsidy, government subsidy, art subsidy, uh, academic subsidy, well. whatever it is, and that's totally legitimate. But people, you, we need, I think for those people, many of them are genius musicians, but you need to see yourself in a broader uh, context than, than this kind of uh, incredibly, like it's like the Roman patrician context. Well, you know, you know? The, thing, the, thing, the thing that's happened you know, there was a brief shining moment where jazz was the music of a, was a music of the community. It was, mm -hmm. it, was it was a communal music. It was community music. Yeah. And and it existed co existed on one hand as you know there was a certain once the music became wholly associated nearly with academic mm -hmm. the whole idea of you know legitimizing legitimating legitimizing legitimizing yeah. jazz and. When the you know the music essentially exists to 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 edify 
a sophisticated cultural elite with the means to support it. Mm-hmm. And because of that... But I would like to amend that sophisticated. It is very narrowly sophisticated. Okay. Because Good it does point. not appreciate any vernacular that is not yeah. its own, generally speaking. Yeah. Well, you know, this, this, is the, this is the thing. This is one of the things. It's like disconnecting it from people's lives, everyday lives. Yeah. Where the music doesn't, you know, uh, especially if the musician, you know, it, it, the musician enters into a kind of solipsistic mm-hmm. dialogue. Mm-hmm. With, with you know like music for musicians right mm-hmm. like there's right. another elite the elite of where they don't know and yeah. they're this that and the other thing which is you know I think that's a natural thing for some people you think about somebody like Lenny Tristano and he's brilliant you know but yeah. I think that he's a curmudgeon yo super curmudgeon Joe Satriani we had talk, yeah. Joe Satriani was talking yeah. did you take lessons from him I actually well? actually played with a piano player who studied with Lenny uh-huh. and 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 it was funny talking to to to, to, to Joe, and uh, <laughs> it was the, their they their stories. Oh yeah, were the same. Derek, way. I played with yeah, a guy yeah. named brilliant, brilliant guy named Derek Baines, brilliant piano mm. player. I haven't seen him in years, but really special. And uh, and man, they were you know Lenny's yeah thing. And Lenny put a stamp on a on a, on a, a, a bunch of players. Yeah, but sure Lenny did. was like Lenny was like you know he would he would end a lesson quick, right? He would end right, that's quick. what I heard. Yeah, yeah. He, would, he would just be like, get out of my house. You know? But you know <laughs> there is that thing where you talk about the solipsistic, which is an awesome word to even try to say. But you know <laughs> it is yes okay. You know what? There are musicians who who they develop something that's basically made for playing for other musicians, right. and that's legitimate. Oh, that's yeah, totally yeah, yeah. fine. But you know don't vibe someone like Eddie Harris because he plays music for that and also for people who really just want to yeah. hear some well, great don't, music. Well, don't, don't, don't vibe, don't vibe uh, Grover Washington. Well, exactly. And Grover Washington, I mean, and what's funny is that Grover Washington begat a bunch of other shit that is like, I can't It has nothing to do with him. It has nothing to do with him. But then the thing, the thing about it, you know that all of Go-Go music is based on Mr. Magic? Really? Get out of here. Yo, dude. The cowbell pattern. Dude, dude, dude. Oh boom. Boom, 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 boom. Yo. They, um, were talking to, uh, who's the cat uh, from D.C.? Um, he's what, the Chuck god Brown? from Chuck Brown. Oh, they had that interview. guy is Chuck bad Brown. I, 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 he actually, is a badass guitar player. He Chuck, just passed recently. I know. Woo. Chuck Brown was talking on WFMU. They were interviewing him. Get out. And wow. he was like... You know, ask him about go about about go go music, the roots go go. So, well, you know, go go music is based on Mr. Magic. <laughs> it was literally, look, dude. It was That's like, incredible. it was like, you oh, know, it's like with that movie. moment in Star Wars, yeah, the Empire yeah. Strikes Back, or yeah, yeah. Luke, I'm your father, uh, your and we're like yeah. suddenly, Whoa, it was like, was what? It was, what the? And what? then I heard Mr. Magic and said, dinner, dinner, dinner. Oh snap! <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It, it and and that's. Yeah. Ama- you know, that's one of the ma- amazing things. It's like one piece of information right. can unspool sure, sure. into an entire worldview. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you know what? It all ends up, the, if you start pulling apart a, th- a thread of something, yeah, there's man. always so many inconvenient realities. Well, you, the, the in- and in, within those inconvenient realities is the truth. 
and I, the broader truth of, the, of whatever it is. I mean, they talk to someone like like a Cannonball Adderley, oh, and, and they ask, well, who, who did you... Who did you like? Like, who did you uh, listen to? And who was that white alto player that had the big bands uh, back in the day? His brother had a, a band too. Why can't I think of it? It's, I mean, people would think of it as super square, but it's like he would say, "Oh, that was my guy." And I was like, "Well, you know what? That's incredibly inconvenient." But it's what I don't like is, and I think it's bad for everyone, mm-hmm. is when you you have your worldview and it's microscopic and so you want to fit everyone into that thing right and ultimately at the end of the day you're making you're stealing their humanity you know they're you're stealing their you their ability to make decisions for themselves mm -hmm. even when they're dead you're stealing all the dead all the dead all the dead really have no voice yeah (laughs) i mean for sure i mean uh, if you just saw pictures of coltrane if you just saw pictures of him, you would develop a profile in your mind of a super heavy, serious, you know, right. dude. Right. It, I heard an interview with John Coltrane, and he was a nerd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's going on the BBC, is interviewing him, and he's going on and on about these reads and the sound of his voice. Like, hey man, you know, um, I got this new read, and I'm really excited. Oh, and, so and to the awesome. point, and he's going on and on about it to the point where the interview is like, well, uh, Mr. Coltrane, yeah, like, we need what? you to be the person we want you to and, be. And yeah. it's, it's funny because it it is like Robbie Coltrane is so very much like his father. And when you, you talk to him, yeah, you know, he's yeah. like kind of... And, and we, Robbie's fantastic in I his own right. I love him. Yeah, yeah, I he's love great. Him. He's, he's I love great. him. I love him because... I love Robbie Coltrane because no one in their right mind... Like, he couldn't avoid the saxophone. Yeah, yeah. Like, Woo! the thing that can't be helped, the thing that you're going to... You have to do this thing. Couldn't someone have given him an accordion or... And you know, it's funny, <laughs> but that but those are the things. I actually recently um, started dialogue with the art, with the funk... Vocalist Steve Arrington, you oh, know, I've from heard of from, him. from from Slave. Yes. Okay. Yeah, no, and no. and he had this band, the Hall of Fame. He's a fan, he's fantastic, and he, one of his musicians had a huge impact on me. And he's a legendary guy, uh, Arthur Rames, and he was a guitarist, a pianist, and a saxophonist. He was a, a, the greatest cat, mm. single cat. I mean, because he played everything like that was mm. it, right? And he was very influenced, very influenced by. Johnny Winter, John McLaughlin, mm-hmm. and John Coltrane. Gotcha. Like, gotcha. He was, and he and yeah. he, uh, he passed, and and there were a handful of people. Uh, he died in '89, and, and mm. there were a handful of people who even know his name. And one of the things about talking about the, in, the, in, the inconvenient, yeah. right? When Arthur Rings passed, and he he died of AIDS, and you mm. know, I mean. Uh, and that's not even an important fact, but just the fact that, you know, he was a person who dealt with a lot of pain, a lot mm. of things in his life. And I remember he was in hospice and a mutual friend uh, called me and said, hey, man, you know, nobody knew where he was for a while. Wow. And uh, he said, man, he's, he's at this place and I went to see him. And we all went to see him, and it was a pretty shattering experience. You know, he he was very ill. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he said, and he said, when I get out of here, I think I'm going to focus my attention on blues because this experience has given me a new insight into suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And with those words, I mean, we're emblazoned. I've said them verbatim. Wow. And all of history mm. is exactly that. There are 10 Picassos. Yes. There are 100 Hendrixes. Mm. That we haven't heard of, and will, and and quite possibly will never hear of. Yeah. There are, uh, uh, I mean, so many brilliant filmmakers, novelists. You know, mm -hmm. they were born and passed, and their works are sitting in trunks mm -hmm. and behind bookcases, mm -hmm. and. Uh, it's just a fire that never got started. You know, you know. I mean, that's that's. Then you're absolutely right. And the one thing of those of us that have, whose names are even known at all, we're extraordinarily fortunate. Very lucky. Extraordinarily fortunate. And and some some people are recognized. They they get to the height. Well, the thing is, all of us that are alive, all of us that are alive are in process, and we can all make a decision to connect. Mm -hmm. To our art, to connect to to to, con to to connect to the voice, to have the courage to say the thing that's in your head that right. you won't say. Right. You know, like, and I feel this, and in, in, in my connection, my feeling about this is with musicians, actors, comics, visual artists, poets. You know, I think about the poet Seku Sundiata was very mm. impactful uh, in my life, and and the way he embodied time, his lyricism. You know, I think about, you know, Gil Scott Heron. Mm -hmm. Gil Scott Heron, you know, for all his political, I mean, he was just remarkable, you know. He's a studentist. You know, he was also a guy with a monkey on his back. Big time. Yeah. He had a monkey on his back. Yep. And that monkey, you know, I mean, his great one, his, big, his biggest hit, the bottle was really yep. about that monkey. And I remember, man, seeing him uh, one time play a show at SOB's, uh, Sounds of Brazil, and I thought, he's going to die tonight. Yeah. <laughs> he was, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. I opened for him once, and he fell off the fell off the bench on the stage. It was terrible, and I remember seeing him. But, you know, I had had his records because my mom was a big political activist mm -hmm. back in the day, and she would organize these events, you know. And um, they were trying to get uh, Gil Scott Heron to do like a, a benefit for someone who was wrongly jailed. Um, it actually ended up being John Lee Hooker doing it, and that's a whole other story. Wow. But um, but so you know, basically they said, yeah, well, he'd be happy to do the thing for free, but you need to get him a Bunsen burner. And uh, <laughs> 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 and I think my mom and her friends were like, they're all like California, the Peace and Freedom Party. Remember them? They were like, no, I don't think so. I don't you think need to get, need get him a Bunsen arrested. burner. <laughs> like, I don't think we need to get arrested right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or like a Coleman stove or something oh. like that. <laughs> you know. But, you know, and I also remember, you know, I was a, obviously you're a huge fan. You come up hearing that music all the time. And, mm -hmm. and I remember seeing him on Saturday Night Live when, when he did that What's the Word Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. But, you know, when to, I think maybe we'll end off now, but mm -hmm. take it back to the beginning. When I, right after we had done that gig with you, Michael and I, mm -hmm. we ended up opening for, for Gil Scott Heron. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Michael, at that point, he was, he grew up in Davis, and, and I think he was like, I mean, he'd seen enough, but I don't think he. His influence is very obvious to me. Yeah, but he was not, he was so into Gil Scott Heron, but he mm -hmm. was not prepared 
for Gil Scott Heron, the person. The reality. And and he didn't, because that wasn't before the internet. No one was telling him, hey, you know, he's really, yeah. you know, and we showed up at this gig and, and it was kind of like seeing the look on Michael's eyes when he saw <sighs> Gil Scott, who was like a wreck and just looked like a homeless person and he yeah. was strung out. Yeah. It was just like seeing a kid who's being told it's, that there is no Santa Claus. And you know, and that, you is, know? that is so... I mean, it was it was rough. I, I was just like, wow. And, and then note to self, yeah. note to self, use this experience uh, so that when you meet your idols, don't put them on too high of a pedestal as human beings. Well, know? the thing, the thing is, the beauty, the thing that we love, the the sound or the way the person occupies mm -hmm, space, mm -hmm. the fact that they create this moment and these moments mm -hmm. from being a fibril, flawed person born mm -hmm. a man and woman mm -hmm. in the context of a family with all that that entails the person that's a star to you an icon to you they're the middle child in a family that's so well put yeah so well put you know the actress or the actor that you think mm -hmm. is you know is so great you know is is incredibly beautiful extraordinarily handsome fantastically gifted they're trying they're, they're, they don't give a fuck about that exactly yeah, totally. Shit, it'll shock you. Marvin Gaye? Oh, my word, yeah. yeah I mean, if there's a, one of the greatest of the many tragedies of the 20th century. People, listen, I was getting going to get in a van with Shannon, and it was a and it was Sunday, and the word came, and it was BLS, was on, we on 8th Avenue. People screamed on the street. Wow, wow. People hollered on the street yeah. when the word came out. Wow. You know... The thing about it is, he was an icon of soul. Oh, man. Women, yeah. oh, forget yeah, yeah. it. His daddy give him, didn't give a shit oh. about that. And, and you know, the other thing was that the gun that was used to shoot Marvin Gaye Jr. was given to Marvin Gaye Sr. by his son mm. as a gift. Mm. So these things that we take for granted, because the sound is so all-encompassing yeah. and it changes our consciousness and we're like entranced yeah <laughs> we're yeah. seduced and, and 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 I can't say wrong I can't say wrongfully I think if you take the romance out of everything but you have to you have to keep in mind that it's human and the fact that they make this sound and they yeah. do the things they do, it's even more extraordinary. Yeah, it is. And <laughs> I think, you know, if you think about somebody like Gil Scott Heron or, yeah. you know, you go back to even Hank Williams or mm. Marvin Gaye, like you, you were just talking about, you know, these people are putting out, or a great poet or a great writer, they really are putting themselves out at their most vulnerable. <laughs> And they're most intimate to you. We do as musicians. Yeah, absolutely. We are sending that message out in throughout a, a, a situation or a, a, um, an environment that is incredibly hostile. A hostile to the you, human humanity, the hostility of humanity. So we're sending these signals out to yeah. people when we're our honest, authentic selves, yeah. whatever it may be, and we are being the most intimate that we can be. And I think that when you hear those records or it's something that's imprinted itself in mm. your mind you you have this uh incredibly idealized version of it because you want something idealized in your life because not only is that person the middle child or their dad doesn't yeah. care about them 
you were also the middle child and your dad yeah. doesn't you. So that speaks it's to you t- so deeply. Those things are... And you can be con- it can be confusing. It can be know? very confusing. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we all do, we do what we can. I mean, beauty is like ugliness in that it is confrontational. When mm. you're confronted with the wow. possibilities, wow. when you see someone who experienced something really beautiful, something of the divine, you are confronted with your with the distance from that beauty mm-hmm. that you possess. You're far from it. Yeah. And it hurts. It hurts. There's yeah. a longing. There's a longing. Yeah. The thing that you will never have union with. The thing that you will you'll never have. And at the same time at the same time, when we're confronted by our deepest fears, the ugliness, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. We're also the implacable, you know, the the the, um, the callous, the cruel, mm-hmm. you know, because they have the power to do it, right? Those that's also it feels as if you can never reach the heights of the divine. You can never get below or around, you know, the depths, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And and it's 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 kind of, you know there's a place in folk tales, this you know. To, to speak of the unspeakable, mm. you know, and and this is what we do. This is what the artist is charged to do. This is why you know Jackson Pollock. I saw Jackson Pollock first time. I couldn't breathe because mm. you know it was one of his black and whites who was in, mm-hmm. in Paris, and and uh, his rage was still in the canvas, and he gave mm-hmm. such a gift. The thing I thought about this. One thing for an artist to think about, and it's a weird trick. But it's to think about your art as a gift, not for yourself, but for mm. those that will experience it. And that and that responsibility to give that gift without, you know, without like you gotta get you gotta you gotta hook me up now. Exactly. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. To give that gift. Like Hendrix gave a gift. All of the great you know, Eddie Harris gave us tremendous gifts mm. you know what I mean people that you know uh, Hank Williams gave us a gift Vince Guaraldi mm-hmm. gave a gift Mozart Frank Zappa all the musicians and artists that we've mm-hmm. spoken of you know um, Sarah Vaughan yeah. right you know all the artists you know Ella Fitzgerald you know Ella Fitzgerald was like in an abusive relationship for years mm-hmm. you know and she she nothing but light. You know, we we tend mm-hmm. to think of Billie Holiday because Billie Holiday was tortured and you know, right, right, and, right. And, and Elvis just seemed like super not like right, nice, like, oh, right? this is so made for ready for prime time. And yeah, yeah. and but she faced a lot of pain in her life. She faced she had her own things she had to do, and she made a beautiful sound. Yeah, yeah. And it was a gift. I mean, I think about it. The, you know, it's a gift. Edgar Allan Poe gave us a gift. Mm. You know, mm. it's funny that like, people think about Poe, and they don't. You know, Poe was also very funny in his writing. It wasn't just mm-hmm. a pit in the pendulum. Yeah, we yeah, we tend yeah. to be very, like you say, we tend to be narrow. Exactly. You know, so he had some inconvenient. Inconvenient. I love. Do, I love that idea. The inconvenient, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that is. Yeah. That is. We'll see, but but so you know, to put it back on and this whole living color thing. You guys somehow managed to make your inconvenience an asset <laughs> at the right you know, time. And that you know? is well, and that's and then you you shifted a paradigm. By yeah. doing that, you know, and and yeah. that's uh, that's what happens, right? Yeah, that's what you talk about. Except, but somebody like Eddie Harris or 
uh, Derek Dolphy there, their sure. inconvenience never got them to a point where they shifted the paradigm, so they couldn't experience that. Uh, well, they they didn't, you know, they they like one of, you know, the funny thing about like think about a cat like Wardell Gray, you know, Wardell, oh, Wardell Gray, you know I what love I mean, Wardell and, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and Wardell Gray, you know. Oh, I mean, you know, and, and you know, Fats Navarro, you know, mm, the cats that, mm -hmm. that that didn't get the the thing. But you know, the fact that we they were what were they called premature anti-fascists? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the fact that we recognize, right? You know yeah. what I mean? That we even people that are born to trouble, yeah, and strife, to to recognize, you know, what they went through in their time. Mm -hmm. You know, they are us. They are, they embody people that embody a certain thing. The writer, yeah. the writer that didn't get, he's not gonna be. You know, but you know, a hundred years, maybe, maybe John yeah, Sladek, maybe John Sladek will be recognized as a great science fiction right, writer. Right, right, but right. I picked up a book. This is the beautiful thing about art. For somebody to pick up a book. What well, the paradigm shifted now because now people got you gotta click that link. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It definitely puts you in a serious box. Yeah. You know what are you gonna do, man? You never know. We do. The, we do what we can. Absolutely, <laughs> as always. We do what we can. Well, dude. On that note, oh, man, you did more than you could. Oh it was my lord! My oh. Pleasure. Always oh, a pleasure joy, hanging man. with you, uh, my absolutely, friend. Absolutely, man. <laughs> How's your boy doing with the little league?